The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study God's Word and concentrate this evening. We have a few moments of silent prayer, so if you need to use 1 John 1, 9, then you can do so, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the privilege and opportunity to gather together this evening and to study your word, to focus on the truth of your word, that it is that which teaches us how to look at life and how to understand the realities of life as you have created all things. And the spiritual life that we have is a creation by you that we received at the instant of our salvation. And Father, the only way we know how to live that spiritual life is through the instruction of your word. So we pray that we might be able to understand these things. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides and directs our thoughts and helps us to understand your word and to apply it. We pray that under his ministry we might understand these things clearly and see how they do apply to our lives, that we might be changed and transformed into the image and the character of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So let's open our Bibles this evening to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we will uh, continue. Now that I've got some glasses, things look a whole lot better. Romans chapter 8, let's go down to verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. I want to do a little review. Last time we looked at this, and I was a little fuzzy on one point. One of the things that most people think about when they come to this verse is that this is referring to an action performed on every believer. That since every believer is a son of God, because we're all adopted into the royal family of God at the instant of salvation, that this is a reference to every believer. All who are led by the Spirit of God in this understanding, these are sons of God. And the reverse would be true, that if you're a child of God, you're automatically led by the Spirit. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Not every believer is following the leadership of God the Holy Spirit. This is the same thing that Paul emphasizes over in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And the same idea follows that that because Paul has been addressing the Galatians who have succumbed to 
legalism and trying to apply the law as a means to spiritual growth, that Paul is making that contrast. It's the way of spirituality is either under the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit, or it's through morality. And the problem with many denominations is that they don't understand that the unique factor about the spiritual life in the church age is that it is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And how do you make that happen? And it starts with confession of sin so that we're filled by means of the Spirit and then we continue to walk by means of the Spirit, which is a moment-by-moment dependence upon the Holy Spirit to apply the principles of God's Word. And those are the two power options in the spiritual life. The Spirit of God and the Word of God, they work together. It's a tandem principle. There is never one without the other. And they work together. The leading of the Spirit is not some sort of mystical, get in touch with your feelings, sit in your prayer closet and meditate and contemplate your navel until you think God speaks to you. Go on some 40-day fast and somehow that's going to make you more spiritual and you hear voices and now you're in touch with God. The Spirit leads through the objective, written revelation of the Scriptures. So there's no, uh, no point of confusion there. But this is talking about, in context, two different types of believers. And we built a chart last time of the two different types of believers in Romans chapter 8. There are successful believers and there are failure believers. There are those who are advancing and growing in the spiritual life and who are seeking to reach spiritual maturity so that they can bear, as we saw in John 15, fruit, much fruit, and more fruit for the glory of God because that passage tells us by this, that is the bearing of fruit, God is glorified. Now, we've seen that this chapter talks about two different lifestyles. The lifestyle of the successful believer is that he walks according to the Spirit. That means he walks according to the norms and standards of the Spirit, and those norms and standards are laid out through the, all of the imperatives and prohibitions of the New Testament. The failure believer lives according to the sin nature. He is not letting his thinking being, be renovated by the Word of God. He just lives the same way. He doesn't really change. Now, the thing is, most of us don't like change. Most people resist change. I think that's part of the sin nature. It's comfortable to follow in those same patterns we've always had, those same procedures relating to people, reacting to certain circumstances, trying to resolve problems on the basis of our own effort, our own energy, our own talents, rather than doing it God's way. And that is a failure believer. They may look nice, they may be moral, they may be wonderful people, but they are not living their life on the basis of God the Holy Spirit. So there's a contrast of lifestyle. And that's based on two different ways of thinking. In verse 5, the successful believer operates on doctrine. The failure believer still operates on human viewpoint thinking, which is called paganism or worldly thinking in the Scriptures. There are two different results. The believer who is advancing to spiritual maturity and is successful has the abundant life. There is a richness to his life. There's a capacity of life that is developed so that even if things are bad, even if there is a tremendous amount of adversity and suffering, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, there is peace, there is stability, there is contentment in the most dire circumstances. In contrast, the failure believer attempts to live life on his own terms, but he always comes up empty. Life, there's an emptiness about life. There's a sense there's got to be more. There must be something more. There must be 
some level of peace. And so they, then they go on that frantic search for happiness, trying to find peace and stability through the details of life. And so they get involved in all sorts of things, and this is when you glorify the details of life, and that leads to idolatry. And one of the things that we will see more and more in our study on judges is that this is the, the tendency is to even to um, deify the divine institutions. And one of the things that's happened in our country in, in evangelicalism and Christianity is the deification of the family of marriage and family. Now, it's important. These are divine institutions. Marriage is a Christian institution. There's a distinction between the Old Testament divine institution of marriage, which is for everybody, believer and unbeliever, for the stability of the human race, and Christian marriage, which has a higher standard and a higher principle as outlined in Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, this needs to be stressed. But there is such a failure, because there's such failure in our culture in marriage, and family, that what you see in the church is a reaction to that. We, there's an, an overemphasis on it. And what I mean by that, as an illustration, is that at a, this was pointed out in an editorial I read, very good editorial I read not long ago, uh, in a, I believe it was in a uh, newsletter from Martin Bobgan in his Psycho Heresy uh, ministry. And I can't remember, some pastor wrote this, and I thought it was just a brilliant insight. And he used this one of many illustrations, a Christian camp that they had, this church had always been involved with. And the sort of the motto of the church for years was where the Word of God is preached, something along that line. And about ten years ago it changed to where, um, where strong families are built. The strong family, that's a result. That's not the cause. The cause is the emphasis is on the Word of God. But what's happened in so many places, we've got so concerned about the symptoms that we focus on the symptoms instead of the root cause, which is a rejection of truth. And whenever you do that, you start slipping into false patterns of thinking. And there's a tendency to, to put the emphasis or uh, idolize certain things, such as the nation or national policy or politics, that that'll be the solution, and so we tend to uh, make that an idol, or maybe it's the family or the individual, and we get into self-absorption and individual rights and a lot of emphasis on that, and these are just distortions. There's a lot of truth there. I'm not saying that those are wrong. I'm just saying it's that distortion. And so what people do is they start putting their energy, they get involved in crusader arrogance, trying to solve the problems by addressing the symptoms. And... That just ends up in emptiness and temporal death and failure. There's more to life, and that's because the relationship with Christ is missing because there's no doctrine in the soul. There's two different attitudes towards God. There's the attitude of pleasing God and that learning doctrine and applying doctrine is highest priority for the successful believer, and the failure believer becomes complacent towards God Going to Bible class becomes something that is secondary. When distractions come up, it's easy to find something else to do, and that leads to hostility toward God. There are two different sons, as we see in verse 14 and 15. There is the child of God versus the adult son, the huios of God. The successful believer is called a son indeed in verse 14, and that is in contrast to those who are merely children of God, verse 15. 16. And then we're studying the two different heirs and that there are those who are heirs of God and heirs of Christ. 
and then there are those who are merely heirs of God. Verse 14 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And the ones who are led by the Spirit of God are identified as those who are actively involved in putting to death the deeds of the body. And that is talking about the body of sin in context and this operation of the sin nature. And that means that you have to be actively thinking about your own sin nature. What are your trends? What are your lust patterns? How do you apply doctrine specifically in those areas? What, are your, what is it that is your particular area of strength, your particular area of weakness, and being conscientious about the battle, the spiritual battle of taking every thought captive for Christ and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. This doesn't mean that you simply confess your sin now that you're back in fellowship. That's the end of it. That's only the beginning. When you get back in fellowship, all that does is put you back in a position, a relationship with Christ where you can grow. It doesn't advance you any. It simply restores you back to that place where growth can take place. And the way growth takes place is by learning the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit and then applying the Word of God, doing what it says either in thought life or in overt action. Now, when we look at what the Scripture teaches about sons, there's a contrast between the huios, who is the adult son, and the Greek word looks like this, has a rough breathing mark, huios, so we translate that with an H, U-I-O-S, and a child, which is technos, T-E-K-N-O-S. Now, this means a son or an adult son, one who has accepted all of the privileges and responsibilities of adoption. That issue of the, the doctrine of adoption we reviewed last time and is introduced in verse 15, where it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, I pointed out last time that we have to understand what spirit means here, and you always have the charismatic wackos who come along, and every time they see the word spirit, they think in terms of an angel or a demon, and they say, well, the reason you've got a problem is because you've got a spirit of bitterness or a spirit of anger or a spirit of deception. In other words, it's not your problem, it's the demon's problem, and and so you just avoid all responsibility and you have to figure out some way to get rid of these demons. And that's about as far from anything biblical as you can possibly get. In fact, it's nothing more than mumbo-jumbo straight out of the darkest paganism of the Canaanites or Africa or anywhere else. Paganism is rampant. It's mysticism. It's the avoidance of personal responsibility and seeking to blame it on something else. As I quoted last time from the Greek lexicons, the word pneuma, translated spirit, has the idea also of an attitude or a mental disposition, a mental attitude or a state of mind. And what Paul is saying is you don't have the state of mind of a slave. So you're not enslaved to that sin nature anymore, so get rid of that that mentality where you're putting yourself under the slavery, uh, under a slavery to the sin nature thinking that, well, I'm tempted, therefore I, I must go go along with that temptation. See, sometimes when we're tempted to do certain things, we just don't uh, think that we have any option because the pressure might be so strong. But what the Scripture is saying, no, you have volition. The unbeliever doesn't have volition. All he can do is sin. 
Now, he may choose not to do that sin, but he's only resisting in the power of the sin nature itself. So whatever he does is sin because he's a slave to the sin nature. And this is what Paul emphasizes back in verse 16 of chapter 6. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death. Now, that's still not, that's not eternal death. That's temporal or carnal death. If you're a believer and you continue to follow the sin nature, then you're presenting yourself as a slave. You have that attitude of slavery to the sin nature and the result is going to be death. But you can also be, present yourself to righteousness and obedience and that results in practical righteousness or sanctification and growth. So the bottom line is your volition. You make the decision. Your life is the result of your decisions. No one else's. You can't say, well, somebody did this to me because everybody has somebody who did something to them. You may have one set of circumstances and perhaps in comparison they may be, they may be pretty tough. But we never know what other people have gone through and I've seen some people who have grown up in some fairly good circumstances. And they haven't been abused, and they haven't been mistreated. In fact, perhaps they've been spoiled a bit. And yet they react in the most incredible ways, thinking that they just were so mistreated, they didn't have that, they didn't have this, my parents were mean to me, and, and they just didn't pay enough attention to me, and it's all their fault, and they, for the rest of their life they're on some kind of self-absorbed pity party, trying to blame their parents for everything that went wrong, and they reacted to something, a circumstance or an environment that really wasn't that bad as if it was something horrible. On the other hand, I've seen people who have grown up in the most horrendous circumstances. Alcoholic parents, abusive parents, uh, broken homes, and yet because of their volition they have chosen not to make that an issue but to make good decisions from the position of strength and so they have a stable life yet they came out of horrible circumstances. It's not our circumstances, it's how we respond to those circumstances that makes the difference. Because everybody has negative things, has adversity, everybody has suffering, everybody has things that they can blame. We live in an age where everybody wants to make an issue out of being a victim, and frankly, in some sense, we're all victims. Adam sinned, and we all suffer the consequences. And we all live in a fallen world. But we're not victims in the sense that Everybody wants to use that term today to avoid responsibility. Now, we are either going to function as technos or as huios, as children or as adults. John 1.12 says, For as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called, and the correct translation is children of God. It is the Greek word technos there in John 1.12 so that it's talking about that at the moment you accept Christ as Savior, you become a technos, you become a child of God. And as a child of God, then you can advance to spiritual maturity. And when you take the responsibilities of adulthood, that is being a huios in this context. Paul is talking, contrasting the attitude of a slave versus the, per, the believer who has an attitude of, of adoption. We looked at the doctrine of adoption last time and we saw that what that means in the, that society, there were two different ways adoption could go on. There's a Greek concept of adoption and a Roman concept of adoption. And in the Greek concept of adoption, it emphasized the family more and that family relationship. And a father could adopt someone outside the family 
to be a member of the family, but it was up to the one adopted as to whether he would accept the responsibility. And the person who accepted those responsibilities then was elevated to the primary position in the family as the heir, even though he might not even have a blood relationship. On the other hand, in a Jewish society, when the uh, firstborn, now the firstborn might not be, be the first one born in order. And we will see an example of that later on, that Esau was born first in order, but he gave up his, uh, his inheritance rights to, to Jacob. And when he did that, Jacob became the firstborn. Because firstborn has to, is a title of priority. And Jacob gave up his rights. Now, at the time that Paul's writing Romans, by the first century A.D., in a Jewish context, when a person was adopted by, in a Jewish household, then the title they called the father was this close, intimate title of Abba. That is the, um, an Aramaic term. Av is the term for father. Abba is, is a diminutive term or a term, closer term of endearment, much like we would say daddy. It's a very close, uh, close term. So Paul is emphasizing here that as a believer, you didn't get an attitude of slavery, that is to the sin nature of salvation, that's broken, but you receive an attitude of adoption. Now, are you going to take that responsibility and fulfill your obligation as a, uh, to pursue adulthood and to become an adult son? Now, verse 16, he said, the Spirit Himself bears witness. This is not a some sort of a subjective communication. This is simply that the Holy Spirit gives our soul a sense of assurance of our salvation. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. He communicates with our human spirit in just a sense of, 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 um, of conviction that we are saved. He doesn't lead us. This isn't a passage on divine guidance. This isn't a passage on continuing revelation through dreams or visions or I have a decide, decide which job to take so I need to pray and, and just relax and see how the Spirit leads me. None of that. It's restricted. The communication of the Holy Spirit here, the witness of the Holy Spirit, is, is restricted to assurance of salvation. And then we come to our passage in verse 17, and if children heirs also, heirs of God, comma, and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, we saw last time that the issue here is punctuation. And the English version has a comma after children and a comma after Christ, which makes heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ synonymous. If that's true, then the way you become an heir of God is through suffering. And that's work. So it's just a poor... Punctuation should be translated or punctuated if children, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, and fellow heirs with Christ, no comma, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So what we have in this passage then is not heirs of God and joint heirs as synonyms, but two different levels of heirship or inheritance. Heirs of God is common to every believer. All believers at the instant of salvation are heirs of God and as part of their inheritance, every believer shares certain things in common. They all have, are going to receive 
resurrection bodies at, at the rapture. Every believer will receive a resurrection body. Every single believer will spend eternity in heaven. Every single believer will know the, the happiness and joy of heaven. But there are also going to be some distinctions. There are going to be other believers who advance to spiritual maturity and they become joint heirs. They become joint heirs with Christ. And this has to do with their position of ruling in the Messianic kingdom and a position of responsibility in heaven. You see, you can't assume a position of responsibility unless you have been properly trained first. And the training ground is here and now in phase two. Between the time we're saved and the time we die, the issue is how much doctrine are you going to learn and apply so that you can grow to a level of responsibility so that in the eternal kingdom, or in the messianic kingdom and then in eternity, you can have a place of ruling and reigning. You have to have the capacity for it. If you don't advance, in this life, then there's no training and there's no preparation for that responsibility. Now, we have to understand some things about inheritance before we go any further. So, let's stop and take a look at the doctrine of inheritance. The doctrine of inheritance. Point number one. Two key words that are used are, first of all, the noun kleronomos. Pleronomos. And it means inheritance, possession, or property. The emphasis, when we talk about inheriting something in our culture, we think primarily of someone dying and then we gain whatever they leave to us. Whereas the emphasis in the, the Greek word kleronomos and the biblical concept of inheritance has more to do with possession of the property, that there's something that you have a responsibility for something that is yours as opposed to someone dying and leaving it to you. It, it emphasizes more the idea of possession than it does someone dying. The verb is kleronomeo, which means to possess, to receive something as one's own possession or to obtain something. It is used to describe a birthright for the believer which by which every believer enters into by virtue of their sonship. We all have a birthright by virtue of our sonship. In Galatians 4.30, sonship is used to describe what happens at adoption. Every believer participates at that kind of sonship. And this is our birthright, Galatians 4.30 and Hebrews 1.4. It is used to describe property given as a gift in Hebrews 1.14 and Hebrews 6.12. It describes property received as a gift in contrast to a reward in Hebrews 1.14 and 6.12. In 1 Peter 3.9, though, it is used to refer to property received on condition of obedience to certain conditions. That this is received because you fulfill certain conditions. So in Hebrews 1.14, it's a gift, no conditions, in 1 Peter 3.9, it's based on conditions. 
So that tells us that that's a conflict unless there are two different kinds of inheritance. And that rewards are based on meeting certain conditions and following certain activities. So this is our inheritance. It is related to the rewards we receive at the judgment seat of Christ. Point number two. Jesus Christ is called the heir of all things in Hebrews 1 verse 2. He is the heir of all things. There we read in these last days, He, God, has spoken to us in His Son. And I think that is an instrumental dative there, meaning by means of His Son. It is God the Son who revealed God the Father to us. He is the only begotten of the Father. John 1.14 says, No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten one has revealed Him Exegeo has revealed Him to us. So, in these last days, God has spoken to us by means of His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. So, Jesus Christ is the heir. That's why He's called the firstborn. He is called the firstborn in the Hebrews passage, not because He is first in the creation order, as if there was a time when Christ was not, but because He is the designated heir. That's what prototakos means. In the Hebrew system, firstborn is, is often a title for the designated heir. He may be the second, third, or fourth one born, but he is the first in priority. So a good way to understand firstborn is the preeminent one, the one who gains the double portion in the Hebrew system. So Hebrews 1-2, In these last days God has spoken to us by means of His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Point three, Inheritance for the believer is based on adoption. Based on our adoption, which occurs at the instant of salvation, and we are entered into the royal family of God. Therefore, inheritance is related to positional truth. It's related to Romans 6, 2-4, which says that we have all died in Christ. We have been identified with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection, which is symbolized through water baptism and immersion. So inheritance is based on adoption. It is part of our sonship and it is related to positional truth. Galatians 3.29, Galatians 4.1, and Romans 8.16-17. through 17. And the thrust of that is that if you are the Father's Son, then you are the Father's heir. That's what it means that we have if children. We are heirs also, heirs of God. So that is the general inheritance of all, of all believers. Point number four. Inheritance is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Everything goes back to what God promised Abraham. That's why it is a cornerstone for understanding everything that follows it in the Scriptures. It's not just something that relates to the Jews in the Old Testament, but it is something that is critical for our own spiritual life today. Inheritance is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3.29 And if you belong to Christ, first class condition, and you do, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So every single believer is an heir by virtue of being in Christ. We are recipients of that blessing paragraph, the third paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant. 
Galatians 3.18, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So inheritance for all believers, the heirship of God, and being an heir of God, is for every believer based on the Abrahamic promise and it's not based on fulfilling any conditions of obedience. Point number five. Inheritance or heirship demands eternal life. Because the Son must have the same life as the Father. To be an eternal heir, you must have eternal life. Titus 3, 5 through 7. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, God the Father saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now, regeneration takes place at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. What happens is that at birth, at physical birth, we have a human body. This is the house for our soul. And we have an immaterial soul comprised of our self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. Now, that soul is in the human body, but we are lacking a human spirit. This is demonstrated from several passages, First, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, Hebrews 4.12, that there is a distinction between the soul and the spirit. Now, the, way, the best way I can illustrate how they fit together is like a hand in a glove. The soul is that glove. And you have as part of that glove each function of your soul, the, the self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. And that's all there and it's present and it is functional to a point as a creature, but you're dead. You are spiritually dead because what allows the soul to have a relationship with God is the human spirit. And at the instant of salvation, God the Holy Spirit simultaneously creates and imparts a human spirit to your body. And that is intimately connected to the soul. It's distinct from the soul because its function is to allow those components of the soul to have a relationship with God. Without the human spirit, the soul can't have a relationship with God. But the human spirit, we must be careful here, the human spirit doesn't do what the soul does. The soul is the seat of thinking. The soul is where doctrine is stored. The soul is the seat of your belief systems where your volition takes place. That's not the human spirit. The human spirit is just the immaterial part that allows the soul, the, who you are, that's the real you, to have a relationship with God. Now that takes place at the instant of salvation and it is not an, something you experience. So at that instant you are born again and that is called regeneration. And at that instant, you're given a human spirit so that your soul can have a relationship with God. And that's based not on anything we do, but solely on what Christ did on the cross. Titus 3.6 then says, Whom He poured out, that's God the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That took place on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. 
when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples in Jerusalem. And from that point on, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, every church-age believer receives the Holy Spirit. The instant of salvation, you're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and you can never lose that. That never changes. It never increases. It never diminishes. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and its purpose is to set your body apart in sanctification as the house for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. But secondly, you are filled with the Spirit at the instant of salvation, and that can be lost through sin. At the instant of of, uh, personal sin, you lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, and you have to confess your sin in order for the filling of the Spirit to be recovered. This emphasizes the fact that at the moment of salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit fully, richly. You don't need some second work of grace, as the Pentecostals say, in order to get a little more of the Holy Spirit. You can't get any more of the Holy Spirit than what you get at the instant of salvation. He is fully, richly poured out upon every believer. Verse 7, that being justified by His grace, we might be made, this is a subjunctive mood indicating potentiality, might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now what do we see in this verse? Is that a person is justified, but he only has the potential of being made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. They're not seen as synonymous. So in this verse, Paul is focusing not on being an heir of God, but something more, something that is conditioned on something else, not something that comes with justification, but something that includes something else. It starts with eternal life, and then it, it, that's the, that, or excuse me, it begins with eternal life, and you can't be an heir unless, first of all, you have eternal life and, a, and have been regenerated. Point number six. Heirship means that we are to share the destiny of Christ. Jesus Christ has an eternal destiny and we share it as we share His election. You see, that's what predestination means. You can get involved in all sorts of discussions with, with uh, some people about predestination where it's reduced to something along like fatalism. And that always is a fun, engaging conversation to get into that kind of an argument. But predestination, the pre means beforehand, and destination means a goal. So it is a goal that is established beforehand. That's what predestination means. That beforehand, before time, God designed a destiny for us. And that destiny is to be like Jesus Christ. But that doesn't happen apart from our volition. It happens by our volition being engaged in applying doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained, heiress tense, an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is our confidence through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Point number seven. Inheritance, therefore, is both a present reality and a future possession. It's both a present reality and a future possession. This is developed further in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that <coughs> we were caused to be born again to a living hope to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is our... It's a present reality and it is a future possession. Ephesians 1.11 Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Verse 13 In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that faith alone in Christ alone, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which takes place at the instant of salvation, is related to your inheritance and is a seal and a promise of that inheritance looking forward to our full possession of it when we are in heaven. Did I skip a point? Point eight. It fell off the slide tray. Point eight. Airship means eternal security. We get that from the sealing of the Spirit. Inheritance means eternal security. It is ours forever. We can do nothing to earn to, to, to lose it. We did nothing to earn it, so we can do nothing to lose it. For Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5. It is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for us. But you see... When we talk in terms of category one inheritance, which is being an heir of God, we have commonalities or something that is common to every believer. But then there are the, the joint heirship with Christ possession. And these are contingent. And there are two categories of contingent inheritance blessings. There are contingent blessings in time. These are the blessings that God has designed for us in time that He will not provide for us until we grow to maturity. It is not a system of works. It is not, well, if I go to Bible class and if I learn and if I memorize 30 verses, God's going to give me a blessing. No, it is that as you grow and mature you become uh, able to handle the blessing. None of you are going to go out and buy a five-year-old kid a uh, brand-new Lamborghini or a Rolls-Royce and give him the keys and say, have a good time. Because that kid does not have a capacity to handle that responsibility. You might wait until they're 45 or 50 before they have the capacity to handle that responsibility. So God, does, God is willing to give it to us. In fact, He's already designated it as ours from eternity past. But we have to grow and mature so that we can be worthy of that blessing, so that we can handle the blessing and it won't destroy us. God's not going to bless us with something that we're not ready to handle because it would destroy us. So that's why they are contingent. And we have contingent blessings in time and contingent blessings for eternity. And if we don't grow and advance to spiritual maturity, then those blessings either in time or in eternity, will never be distributed and they will just be reserved in heaven for us and when we get there we can take a nice look at what we missed. And they'll never be ours because we never advanced in maturity to where we could handle those particular blessings. 
Now, we have seen all of these passages that emphasize our inheritance, that we have this inheritance that is uh, reserved for us. Point nine, and we have God the Holy Spirit who's the down payment of our inheritance. This is through the sealing of the Spirit and He's the pledge of our inheritance in Ephesians 1.14 and Galatians 4.6. That's point nine. God the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance. Now, there is a problem here in understanding these inheritance passages. And that is that there are some passages which speak of inheritance as a permanent possession based on faith alone in Christ alone. And then there are other passages which speak of inheritance as an acquisition or a reward. For example, Ephesians 5.5 says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater See, that relates idolatry to covetousness. It's not necessarily having a physical, material image that you worship, but you're worshiping something more abstract, money and the things that money can buy, trying to achieve happiness through those things rather than a relationship with God. That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Well, what does that mean? That sounds like if, if inheritance is equivalent to gaining eternal life, then that sounds like it's work. That if you are immoral or impure or greedy or materialistic, oops, you can't be saved. Colossians 3.4, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the, the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you, re, whom you serve. So their inheritance is identified with a reward. A reward is not grace. A reward is for service rendered. So there it seems as if inheritance is based on service. Well, if you don't serve Christ and you don't advance to maturity, can you have an inheritance? The only way to resolve this difficulty is by showing that there are two inheritances. There is the inheritance of the kingdom in Ephesians 5, 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. through 10. If you go to the 1 Corinthians 6 passage or Galatians 5 passage and look there, you, you have the fact that if you're a murderer, adulterer, uh, any number of crimes there, then you'll never inherit the kingdom. Well, if that means salvation, then why have a jail ministry? Why be concerned? What about the thief on the cross? How could he get into heaven if, uh, if you can't inherit the kingdom? And if that means salvation. Well, maybe it doesn't mean salvation. Maybe it has to do with something more than salvation. And Hebrews 1.14, inherit salvation. So there's two levels of possession. Point 12, just as Christ inherits the kingdom due to His loyalty to God the Father, so will joint heirs with Christ. Now let's stop here and look at an Old Testament analogy. We'll stop with this Old Testament analogy and come back to review this and wrap it up again next time as we finish up this, this whole series. We go back to our study of Israel. And here's the seacoast in the Mediterranean. Over here in the north was the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River coming down to the Dead Sea. Right about here is Jerusalem. And we have seen in our study of Judges that when the Israelites came up under Joshua. They crossed the Jordan into the land. God had given them the land. That was theirs potentially, wasn't it? 
It was their possession. God had promised it to them. That is, it was called their inheritance. But it was not theirs actually. It was only theirs potentially. They entered in and they executed a global strategy of taking out the major strongholds, Jericho, Ai. Then they moved down into the south where a group of Canaanite kings gathered together in a coalition and they defeated them at a battle there. And then the army headed north and there was another coalition that met them in the north and they engaged them in battle and defeated them. Now with that, they had secured control of the major centers and trade routes in the land. But they still did not control the land, did they? They did not have real deep possession of the land. So Joshua dies, and we've read about that in Joshua in Judges 1.1 and in Joshua 2.16 uh, and 17. And after that, the tribe split up, and Judah went down to Judah's allotment. This is their inheritance, their portion, their, their possession. And they began to engage in battle, and they went to uh, Devere, and they went to... Um, Caleb took, took his possession and they began to engage in different battles to seize control of the overall tribal allotment. Now because they failed, as we studied Sunday morning the first hour, because they failed to seize, so trust God, they only gained control. Judah was probably the best and they probably only gained control of about 75% of their inheritance. So by analogy, what that relates to is an advancing believer who reaches a certain level of maturity. When he gets to heaven, he gets 75% of his inheritance. And the other 25% is forfeited because of failure to obey and to seize the high ground. But potentially, the, the, that whole allotment was Judas. It was given to Judas. It was their, her possession. It was that tribe's possession. And we saw at the beginning of Judges that each tribe going north gets progressively worse. The further away they come from, from the influence of the tabernacle and the leadership of the Lord, the less they're willing to apply doctrine. And then you get all the way up into the north to the tribal allotment for Dan. And Dan is completely defeated. The tribes in between just sort of pa passively capitulate and compromise with the Canaanites and, and the uh, pagan thinking. And so they live together. They capitulate. Just like many believers do. And they never really gain much control, maybe somewhere between 10% and 50%. But Dan represents the failure believer. They are defeated in battle. Now, is that land still there? When, he comes into, when Jesus comes in His Messianic kingdom, is Dan still going to have a possession? Yes. They're going to have that allotment. But see, they, they never gained control here. That was theirs, but they never gained control, and so they forfeited it and they were defeated. And that's what happens with so many believers because they fail to advance in the spiritual life and they don't know how. Now, let's go back to verse 17 for just a minute and focus on one phrase and then we'll come back and expand on that next time along with concluding the doctrine of inheritance. We've only covered the first, basically the first 11 points, barely into point 12. And we've got about 15 to go, and the 15th point has five subpoints. If indeed we suffer with Christ. Now, what does that mean to suffer with Christ? There are two categories of suffering in the life of Christ. He suffered on the cross. We can't share in that. 
He paid the penalty for our sin. This is not talking about what took place on Golgotha between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. What we discover by reading the book of Hebrews is that in Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 2, we are told that um, Jesus Christ learned many things. Excuse me, Hebrews 5.8, we're told that although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things He suffered. Now, that's not talking about the cross. That's talking about His life in His humanity, in His perfect humanity, from His birth to the right before He went to the cross. He had to learn. He went through suffering. He lived in the devil's world. He went through the testings in the wilderness where, the, where He was tempted personally by the devil. He went through various other testings throughout His life and He went through a various amounts of suffering and adversity. And He grew spiritually in that suffering in His humanity under the filling of God the Holy Spirit by applying doctrine. Now, that's what this phrase is talking about. If we suffer with Him. How do we suffer with Him? We go through suffering in life and we handle it the same way He handled it. By dependence on God the Holy Spirit, applying the problem-solving devices. We've studied that, the stress busters. By applying that, that's a growth chart. We'll come back and summarize that next time. That is how we advance. Because we are willing to live our life solve our problems not on the basis of how what comes naturally to us, the easy way out from our sin nature by following all the gimmicks and the how-to principles of a psychological culture, but by applying the principles of the Word of God consistently. The only way to do that is to make doctrine the number one priority. And that means that we're constantly either getting tapes, listening to tapes when we can't be a Bible class, and making being a Bible class that high priority so that our soul can be refreshed by the Word of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we do thank You that we've had this opportunity to look at Your Word and to be challenged with the fact that we do have a, an, a, an inheritance. It is reserved, it's undefiled, and it's in heaven waiting for us. But the issue is our volition, whether or not we are willing to advance to the high ground of spiritual maturity, making our spiritual life and our spiritual growth a matter of the highest priority and being willing to deal with the distractions so that we can put our relationship with you first and our desire to glorify you through the things that we learn and apply. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to look at our lives objectively and clearly so that we can see how we need to apply this. In Christ's name, amen.